Tonight's teaching comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and here the Apostle Paul writes the following. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, so that no human can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word. This text, this very famous text, Uh, Some of you have probably read it hundreds, perhaps, of times before. And uh, for my money, it's probably the best text in all of Scripture for articulating the distinction between Christianity and the religions of the world. Uh, Because every single other religion on earth is predicated on the idea of human performance and human achievement to acquire our own salvation. So, However you define salvation, the concept of being saved, in every other world religion, it comes by what you must do to get yourself there, but not Christianity. Christianity says it's completely by grace. It's undeserved love. It's God's doing. It's God's work. That's really unique. No other religion is like that at all. And we're going to make it real simple tonight. Uh, the division is actually pretty simple. Again, you can, you can answer this question as easy here in the Bible as anywhere else. It tells us we are saved from what, we are saved by whom, and we are saved for what. Okay, so saved from what, simple answer is our sins, verses one through three. Saved by whom, simple answer is Jesus, verses four through seven. And saved for what, verses eight through 10, the good works that God has called us to. It's that simple. Now, I'm gonna spend the next 30 minutes making it more complicated, okay? But at the very least, I want you to be able to understand how simple that actually is. That's the profoundness of Scripture, that even a three- or four-year-old can articulate it, but you can also live to a thousand years old, and you'll never get to the bottom of how beautiful the gospel actually is. So first of all, saved from what? And we're going to walk through the key concepts in this text. The first key concept is the idea of being spiritually dead. Paul does this all the time in his writing, where he takes a concept that you're familiar with and he incorporates it into spiritual language and then you sort of have to unpack it for yourself. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, it means you've got to figure out what it means to be physically dead and then apply that to your spiritual life. So what does it mean to be physically dead? I think the best way of describing it is to be physically dead means you are incapable of responding to any kind of sensory physical stimuli. So only somebody who's alive can respond to sensory, physical stimuli. Quick illustration of this. Years ago, uh, a friend of mine, his father was in the hospital. He'd been battling cancer for years. The father was also a member at the church that I was at. 
And we kind of, we knew this was coming for years. And at, in the last moments and last days, the family was all gathered around and got to say goodbye in the hospital and everything, which was great. But then you get into those moments there, once dad, grandpa, passes away and he's laying in his hospital bed and his body is there, how do the children of grandpa explain that to the grandchildren, what grandpa now is? And so they said things like, well, this isn't grandpa. Grandpa's actually in heaven with Jesus. This is just the shell of grandpa. So it's just that they kept using that word. This is his shell. Which, you know, in a little child's mind, they're trying to process that as they're looking at this body in the bed. And I could see, especially the youngest grandson, who was really, like, precocious, was, like, looking in and trying to figure out what this dead body meant. And sure enough, when I sat them down to do, like, a little devotion, everybody was in, like, a semicircle around me, and, and Grandpa's shell is in the back of the room. And the littlest one snuck away from the devotion, the little stinker, and he went over and started looking at Grandpa's shell. And I could see him leaning in, and then I saw his finger go out. And sure enough, he went boing, 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 boing on the shell's eyeball. And I'm sitting in the back, in the back of the hospital room, and I could, like, nobody else is seeing this, but they could see the horror on my face as I realized something very disrespectful is going on here. And uh, sure enough, they turn around and they see him, and they're like, okay, yeah, he's, we, we forgot to tell you, he's a shell, but there probably should be some reverence and respect here. And, and what's going on. But you understand what he's, what he's processing at that moment. What he's getting at that moment is something that should be sensitive, like an eyeball, is completely unresponsive to physical stimuli. That's what it means to be dead. And therefore, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? It doesn't mean that you don't have spiritual stimuli around you. It doesn't mean that somebody who's spiritually dead, it's not as though they've never necessarily heard the good news of Jesus Christ. It simply means they don't care. They're apathetic to it. They cannot respond to this, the, all the teachings of God like sin and grace and heaven and hell and the good news of redemption and gifted salvation. It just it doesn't mean anything. They can't respond to the spiritual stimuli. Everything else in life is more important. Everything else in life makes more sense. Everything else in life other than Jesus seems like a better problem to the prop, better solution to the problems of life. See, that's spiritually dead. They can't respond to the stimuli. Not only that, but they also have no spiritual muscle. So like, for instance, for me to move this podium, not only do I have to have a will and a volition to move it, but I also have to have some amount of muscles to move it. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. It does not submit to God's law. It doesn't want to, motive. And it can't submit to God's law. It has no muscles to do so. So even somebody who desperately is a religious practitioner who wants to glorify God cannot do so, no matter what moral acts they're doing, if it's not being ignited by the Spirit of God. So the first part is there's no spiritual motive. The second part is there's no spiritual muscle. The third part, and this is maybe the most controversial part, is there's no uh, there's no spiritual magnetism. There's no beauty. Somebody who is spiritually dead, look, if you're physically dead, something happens to your body that nobody else wants to be in the presence of because they're disgusted by it. It's one of the reasons why mortician exists as a profession because if a body just dies and you let it under its natural state, within a matter of time, it will stink and it will be so disgusting to look at that another human being who actually is physically alive 
cannot be in the presence of physical death without vomiting after a number of days. Now that's what it's like to be spiritually dead then too, and this is hard to hear. By nature, this is what we are. Not only are we not attracted to God, but when somebody is spiritually alive, there's something that you understand when you're in the presence of somebody who is spiritually dead, it creates a visceral reaction, a sympathy that you want to help them. And you have to be, there has to be a level of disgust that prompts you to give good news. Now, the reason we have no reason to be arrogant or condescending about any of that is because the Apostle Paul says by nature, we're all in that state. All of us, by nature, have no motive to good, no muscle for good, and no magnetism to good. Every single last one of us, which means, again, no reason ever for any kind of uh, condescension or anything like that. Regardless of if the world categorizes us as good people or bad people, spiritually speaking, spiritually dead people do not understand their inherent deadness and the amazingness of God's grace. That is the first sign of spiritual deadness. If I were to ask you, are you a child of God? And you respond, of course I'm a child of God. I will say, you're probably not a child of God because there's no of course about it. You were dead and God had to make you alive. That is nothing short of a miracle. And there's no of course about the Christian faith. There's no of course about salvation. None of us inherently deserve it. It's entirely otherworldly goodness and grace of God. There's no of course. It's a miracle. Okay? So that's the first concept, spiritual deadness. Not only that, but when we come into the world, look, we're following the ways of the world. And, and Paul, he plucks a concept here that, that Jewish people would have been very familiar with. The Jews understood that Satan and the other fallen angels were essentially like rulers over the different regions and nations of the earth except for Israel. Okay, and so for the Apostle Paul to use this specific term that he does here where he says he is the ruler with authority over the realm of the air, the Jews would have understood he's referring to Satan because the, the realm of the air, that is the lowest level of the, the Shemayim, which is in Hebrew, the heavens. So what we would call like our atmospheric environment, that's the lowest level of the air. That's where Satan has his jurisdiction. That's where Satan has his influence and even his enslavement. And enslavement's the right word. You know why? Because look what he says. You were following the ways of the world. You had no choice. Your master was demanding it of you and you were following it. And actually Satan's biggest trick is that he, he dupes us into thinking that all of our choices are just expressions of our freedom. So what I do with my time, that's what I freely choose to do with what, my time. What I do with my wealth, that's what I freely choose to do with my wealth. How I sexually express myself, that is how I choose to freely do that. He's got you thinking that this is entirely your free choice, that you're like this autonomous individual and it's completely not true. You're born enslaved to his ways, following after his ways, and he's got you and me tricked by nature. Um, this is, honestly, it's a concept that's a lot easier to explain after the 20th century. Because to me, in world history, the 20th century was the fascinating and terrible experiment with the idea that human beings are basically good. Because in the 20th century, you know what we got? We got two world wars and a Great Depression. We lost more life in history in that century than we did in the rest of the centuries combined. And it was the 20th century that gave us characters like Hitler and Idi Amin and Pol Pot and Mao and Stalin 
See, the basic idea in the modernist era was this idea that human beings are basically good and that the reason anybody does bad is because they are psychologically conditioned simply to do bad. And if we just strip away all the religious bias, humans will rationally do the right thing. Humans will rationally do the good thing. Well, at some point in time, look, you can only watch Hitler and Stalin and Mao and reasonably argue, well, they act this way because their mom didn't love them enough. They act this way because they were, they were psychologically and socially gaslit to behave this way. They act this way because they were psychologically manipulated and abused and tortured souls. That only goes so far. At some point in time, you realize, yes, are they monstrous? And by the way, I'm not at all undermining any sort of social conditioning. That's a real thing. But the, the question is, what are we by nature? They weren't people who were damaged goods who became monsters. They were monsters by nature who were acting out of their monstrosity and their humanity. And the scariest thing about all of that is you and I are just as human as they are, which means that you and I are just as capable of damage as they are. And if you don't understand that, that means that you don't understand sin and grace. And if you don't understand sin and grace, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you're spiritually alive. I'm not sure you're a reborn child of God. I know that sounds scary. It sounds very negative, but just, have you ever thought about the fact that to be saved means that you have to acknowledge some weakness? Like the salvation is the concept of being saved and no one can be saved unless you realize that you're inherently in peril, in need of rescue. And that, that's liberating. So by nature, we're born dead. We're following the ways of the world as though that's not enough. We're also told that we're gratifying the cravings of the flesh. So we come into this world with the deck stacked against us spiritually. Um, we are navigating a world that is run by malevolent spiritual forces. And as though that's not enough, we have a traitor on the inside, a Benedict Arnold. The, the Bible calls it our flesh. And whenever the Bible talks about the flesh, it's not talking about your epidermis. It's not talking about your skin. It's talking about your inherent inborn nature. It's that instinct inside of every single one of us that in every moment of life is constantly thinking, what do I get out of this? What's in this situation for me? If I enter into this relationship, what do I get out of this? Fallen human nature is unapologetically self-centered and that's the reason that human beings are innately at war with a triune God. Think about it. A triune God is a relationship unto himself and from eternity past, the three persons of the Trinity were constantly saying to one another, you first, you first, you first. And then when God created humanity and humans are now alive, God says to humanity, okay, you first. I'll make you the principal uh, crown of creation. I'll provide for you and, and put, place my image upon you. It wasn't until Adam and Eve made that decision where they said, you know, Eve said to Adam and she said to God, no, me first. And Adam said to Eve and he said to God, no, me first. And we brought that me first sickness into the world. And if you want to say, okay, what's wrong with the world? At the end of the day, it's human nature to constantly say, me first. Every single time you've ever sinned, um, ever, every human sin since then, whether you were doing wrong or you were failing to do right, whether you were doing what you thought was moral or you were doing what you knew was immoral, I guarantee if you were sinning, your heart at that moment was saying, no, me first. 
Um, the Apostle Paul's basic point here in saying that we're born into the world, spiritually dead, is proven by basic human self-absorption. Because if the wages of sin is death, and sin is essentially self-absorption, self-focus, self-centeredness, uh, Luther in his commentary to the Romans referred to it in Latin as incurvatus and say, the human heart turned inward upon itself. If that's basically what sin is, then that's the proof that every human being comes into this world with sin nature because every single human being you have ever met is primarily about themselves. Whether I don't care if they are the most religious or the least religious. I don't care if they are the oldest or the youngest. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that there aren't humans who are not self-centered all the time, but they're not that way because they're fighting against self-centeredness. So in other words, when we find human generosity, when we find human charity, when we find human mercy, it's because people are fighting against the natural survival instinct inside of us that always is saying, me first. Now, again, this is extraordinarily important for understanding our salvation, but for right now, it's important for understanding yourself. Your survival instincts and the world teaching you constantly to say, me first. Guess what? That is the, you want to know what hell is? It's an eternal trajectory of human beings who no longer have the parameters of civilization and all they ever do without filter, without hindrance, without encumbrance is they say, me first, and God just lets them do it. That's an absolute nightmare. And that's by nature where the arrow of every one of our hearts is aiming. Okay? That's what Paul's saying. We come into the world like that. Fortunately, that's not where the story ends. He gets to verses 4 through 7, which teaches us how we are saved and by whom we are saved. First thing that he tells us about is the fact that we are loved despite being dead. Now, it's difficult. Admittedly, it's difficult to tolerate or show love to or for that matter even make sacrifices for people who are terribly selfish. And yet, that is exactly what God chose to do for us. God does not love us because we're inherently lovable. God loves us despite the fact that we're often so unlovable, which is a deeper form of love called grace. Grace is the concept not just of love, but of undeserved love. See, human beings, by nature, we're capable of love. We're capable of reflecting goodness back to somebody who has shown us goodness. We are not inherently, by nature, capable of grace. But that's the thing by which we get saved. So theologians for centuries have talked about the intrinsic and the relative attributes of God. Intrinsic attributes of God are the things that God is in and of himself, irrespective of human beings. And he was this way from all eternity. The relative attributes of God are the intrinsic attributes applied now to the fallen human condition. So, for instance, the holiness and the justice of God. God is inherently holy. God from eternity past has always been righteous, perfect, good, and holy. But it wasn't until humanity came into the world and fell that when God applies his holiness, now wait a second, there's injustice in the world and God has to right the wrongs of the world because he's holy. So his holiness applied to fallen humanity is what we call justice. Now think about his love. This is even more interesting. God is inherently loving from all eternity, the three persons of the Trinity loving and serving one another ahead of self. But it wasn't until humanity came into the world and fell that the conception of grace was born. 
Why? Because God is no longer loving the lovable. He's loving those who are less lovable, who are inherently unlovable. Either way, he's still doing it, but God's love applied to fallen humanity is what we call grace because he loves us when and while we were dead in our transgressions. This is, think about the things in life that you love. Everything that you love in life and the things that you say you love, you love because you find them to be naturally life-giving. Okay? Um, So, for instance, at the Bucks game the other night, 20,000 fans, pivotal game three. After that, last buzzer goes off and they're screaming. They love, why are they screaming? It's deafening them there because they love the Bucks and actually the Bucks winning a pivotal game three is life-giving to those individuals. It feels, they've never felt more alive than those moments. The same is true for a lot of you when you go to concerts, when you travel someplace new and discover something new, when you eat really good food for a lot of us. The first time, so the reason you fell in love with that girl is because when you were with her, you realized you never felt more alive than that moment. In other words, being with her was life-giving. So the pertinent question is, is that why God loves you and me? Because when he connects with us, we are so life-giving to him. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel actually says for God to enter into relationship with us, it was not going to be life-giving, it was going to be life-taking. In other words, the love that he expresses is not based on the inherent goodness of the object, but it's based on the inherent goodness of the subject who's doing the loving. That's called grace. And actually, it's extraordinarily important if you ever want to transform from what you were into what one day God will make you because love in a general way will not change you. It's not until you see the depth of God's love for you. It's not until you understand the cross. Until you realize that he was willing to go not just across the galaxy but through hell and back to rescue you, until you recognize the depth of his love, you will never be transformed because it's not general love that transforms people. It's the depth of love, the amazingness of love, the grace of love that will actually transform us. Now, if you remain untransformed, you, you probably understand God's love, but you might not yet fully worship him for his grace. Now, we'll get more to that in just a second, but for right now, I've got to move on to the next point in the text where Paul says something really unique. He says, you right now, you Ephesians and you, have been raised and seated with Christ. You've been raised from the grave with Christ and you've been seated in heaven with Christ and he very specifically chooses two, they're aorist tense verses, verbs, which means in the Greek, these are completed actions. It's a finite, conclusive action. So it literally says, sinegairen, which is he raised us from the grave with Christ, and sinekathesen, which is he sat us down together with Christ in heaven. They're past tense, they're completed actions, and they're the reason that right before that he says, you have been saved, which is perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, but there's lasting implications with it. Now, how can that be? So he's writing to these Ephesians, they're reading this letter and Paul is saying to them, you have been raised with Christ from the grave and you have been seated already with Jesus in the heavenly realms and they're sitting there right there in Ephesus and saying, I don't get it. I haven't been raised and I haven't been seated. What does that mean? It cannot literally mean raised and literally seated. What it's got to mean is you're legally raised and legally seated. That means that from God's perspective, Everything that is necessary for your salvation, for you to be admitted into heaven, 
It's already done. It's already taken place. You, he's already paid your ticket to salvation. Now, whether or not you're excited about that, look at it like this. If it, it's like giving a ticket to Disney World to a little kid for Christmas. Is a little kid going to be excited about that ticket or not? It's objectively true. From Disney World's perspective, that kid can walk on into Disney World anytime they want. But from the little kid's perspective, are they excited about holding that ticket? I'll tell you what. When I was 13 years old, I got the best gift I've probably ever received in my life, at least the one that I was most excited about. It was two tickets to, at the time, a WWF, it's now called WWE, uh, professional wrestling pay-per-view event in Saginaw, Michigan, in your house three, look it up, uh, 1995. I was 13 years old. My dad got it for me for uh, my birthday. And so, by the way, this is, church is a safe space. And I want you to understand, I want us to be a transparent people who are not afraid to share the shame and the transgressions of our past and we can usher them out and it's a safe, you know, safe kind of space. So this, it, by the way, there's also discretion. So this is church, this is, we keep this between you and me. Internet, we keep this between you and me. It goes no further. But there was a time in my life where Big Daddy Cool Diesel and the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels were big influences uh, in, it, for me personally, okay? Dark time. But I was super excited because this is like, this will be the, the greatest experience of my life. I was 13 years old. If you had given me those tickets to that event when I was four or five years old, I probably would have rioted because they're tickets. At four or five, give me an action figure, don't give me tickets. Now, what's the difference? The objective reality of the ticket to the event is the exact same. The only thing that changed from four years old to 13 years old is my maturity in understanding what a ticket actually is. You right now hold the tickets to paradise. In fact, they don't, you don't just hold tickets. Every other week we celebrate the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, I want you to consume the ticket. I want you to consume my body and blood and know that what I did for you on the cross and your salvation is yours, specifically for you. Internalize it. Make it part of you. Make it break down into part of you so that you operate out of it. That's how much you get. Whether or not you're excited about that is not based on the objective reality that God sees you as saved already. Whether or not you're excited about that, here's the big reveal, is based on your spiritual maturity. So get excited. Get excited. Because you have something coming to you that is better than anything this world can possibly throw at you. That's why he calls it incomparable riches. See, it's one of the reasons why I think uh, the Bible does not describe heaven in a great amount of detail because any description of heaven would fall short of what it actually is. If you describe heaven in earthly terms, that's just not good enough because if you were to pick out right now in your head what heaven could possibly be like, the greatest thing imaginable for you, and I gave you 10 seconds to do that, not good enough because it's incomparably greater. Incomparable riches that are gifted to you in Christ Jesus. Get excited for that. So, brings us to the final point. If you believe that his grace has not only saved you for all eternity, it, see what it does is it changes the way you view God, it changes the way you view yourself, how you identify, and it changes the way you interact with other human beings. 
And that's what this last section is. Uh, There's two points under here I want to get to. The first one is this. The clearest statement in the section and the clearest section in the Bible that you are saved by God's work, not by yours, he says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no human being can boast. Paul very clearly and deliberately is trying to tell you this is not your doing. This is God's choice. It's God's incarnation. It's Jesus' righteous life. It's Jesus' innocent death on the cross. It's Jesus' triumphant resurrection from the grave. It's God's sovereign working in your life. It's God's gift of faith. Even your faith, you don't get to choose. Even that, you have to give the Spirit credit for. I actually once had a guy uh, years ago. I had taken him through some like membership classes, and he was he was ex-military. He was very, a very proud guy, but like stubborn. And he tried to argue with me about this section and we got to this, Ephesians 2, and by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. He tried to argue that the this not from yourselves only applies to the grace of God, not to faith. In other words, uh, yes, Jesus died and took all my sins away, but I have to make my decision to grab hold of that. It's on me to trust in that in my life. That's my doing, he would argue. He actually tried to share with me, he had read through like a commentary, I think, uh, on uh, the Greek of it, and he said, look, uh, the Greek of it, it only points to grace. It doesn't point to the, the faith, to which I'll admit there's a little bit of linguistic ambiguity here, but even, even that, it doesn't matter because contextually, what did Paul say at the beginning of this section? You're born dead in your transgressions and sins. No corpse can make a decision for Jesus. No corpse can latch onto the promises of God. You have to be made alive to even grab hold of God in the first place if you are in fact a corpse. So why do you want to believe that so bad? Because you're plagiarizing credit from God. You cannot manufacture your own faith, so stop taking self-righteous credit for your faith, self-righteous credit for your own relative morality, self-righteous credit for anything good in your life. It's all a gift. And if it is in fact all a gift, by the way, that'll release so much spiritual power into your life because it'll make you less worried and less bitter. Why? People who I know that stress about like their salvation and worry about it a little bit. Look, if God didn't love you and save you because of your inherent goodness, then at those times in life when you fall and are not good, it doesn't forfeit your salvation. See, if he doesn't love you because of how good you are, then irrespective of how bad you sometimes unfortunately are, that can't forfeit his love for you. So stop worrying about your salvation and worrying about any of that. It's never, it was never based on you. It was all based on God's work anyways. And for that matter, why do you get so spiritually bitter at other people? The only person who gets bitter is somebody who thinks they deserve more. If you are by nature a corpse, you don't deserve anything and you're not capable of anything. You want to get rid of bitterness in your life? Recognize the understanding of God's grace and what that actually means. Now, Admittedly, there is that issue of, okay, after you come to faith, do you grab hold of God? Do you make decisions for God? And and the answer is yes, but it works like this. I once heard the illustration of, imagine that you have a little kid who is uh, in such a deep sleep. Let's say it's like a, a coma, but even deeper, a deeper sleep than a coma, almost like death. But let's say one of the parents kisses that child on the cheek and the child wakes up from the deep sleep and grabs hold of and gives a hug to mom and dad. Did they give a hug to mom and dad? Yes, but they were only able to hug mom or dad after 
they were kissed awake in the first place. God has even done that for us. He's made us alive. Everything good we have is a gift of God, and if you believe that, that creates gratitude. And if you have gratitude, you will be a much healthier, much happier person. Brings me to the final point. Only when you are filled with gratitude are you capable of living a life not about you. And in this section, look, you know, the crazy thing is, if you are just saved to eternal paradise, that means you have a lot to look forward to, but it means that the 70 or 80 years that you get here on earth are relatively meaningless. But if your years here on earth, if you sense they are not meaningless, you're right, because every decision that you make matters, and every sacrifice that you offer right now today has eternal impact and matters. And here's why. Because Paul says that we are God's workmanship. It says handiwork here in the newer translation, but it's the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. And what Paul is essentially saying then is that you and I are God's work of art. That's really interesting to think about. You and I, who you are is poetic. Nothing is random. All the stuff in life that you sometimes resent a little bit, like, oh, I'm this old now and I don't want to be this old. Don't resent that. God made, he, he had you born in the exact year he had you born in because he wanted you this age right now. Your age is not random. Your gender is not random. Your ethnicity is not random. The parents that you were born to is not random. The upbringing that you experienced is not random. Don't resent any of it. And for that matter, don't, your weaknesses, your uphill challenges, all the sufferings that you faced, Nothing is random. God wrote you the way that he wrote you and he allowed certain things because he was weaving you into a perfect fabric by which he was going to catch the lost souls of the world. You're exactly the way God wants you to be because he discipled you to accomplish his purposes to reach and serve people that only you by his choosing and design and discipleship can now reach and serve. You are the way you are because God sat down at his desk and he penned you as his poem. So just let your good news of his grace be read out into the world. Can you imagine the type of blessing that you would be the world? Not if you were smarter, not if you were wealthier, not if you were more beautiful, not if you were more accomplished, all the things that we want to be, but aren't? No. If you were exactly as you are today, except you were more humble, more grateful, and more hopeful, can you imagine the amount of good that you would bring into the world? I remember a story years ago of a pastor who uh, they were filling new committees and new uh, boards and new councils at church. You know, like a lot of churches do that like once a year and they were trying to add somebody to the board of elders and somebody made a suggestion and he said, no, I don't think that guy's ready quite yet. And uh, he said, you know, he, he, he liked the guy. He thought he was a um, decent guy, moral, a believer, all that. But he said, I, I don't think he's quite ready for, to be an elder. And the guy who suggested him sort of pushed back and said, well, why not? He checks a lot of boxes and, and whatever else. And the pastor, the senior pastor here said, I, I don't think he's joyful enough. I said, what do you mean? 
He said, you know, if he actually understood how big of a sinner he is, and he actually understood how amazing God's grace to him has been, he would be so ecstatic. And his life would be flavored with joyfulness. And he's just not there yet. And everybody in the room was like kind of convicted, and I'll be honest, that is fairly convicting for me too, but it's 100% absolutely right. If you knew that by nature you're dead and deserve nothing, if you believe that God Almighty loves you so much that he went to hell and back because he was willing to die on the cross and pay for all of your sins because he was desperate to have you as part of his family, if you really trusted in the eternity in paradise that God has in store for you, the incomparable riches compared to anything here on earth, and if you believed that he's written your life specifically this way to make you his beautiful work of art in the world, you would be so joyful. People of grace, people who are in Christ Jesus are the most humble, confident, optimistic, and joyful people that you can find. They rejoice in being unfailingly, unconditionally, and undeservedly loved by God and made into his works of art. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, many of us have been Christians for a long time. Not all of us. Some of us are investigating right now and this thing called grace is alien and foreign and it sounds good but we don't know if it's true. I'm asking your spirit to convince us that it's true. Many of us have been Christians for a long time though but we haven't fully experienced the joyfulness and the rest that comes from understanding grace. Help, and help us to taste and see the goodness of your grace. May it glorify you. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.